Welcome to another episode of On Air with Rebecca. Today, we're going to continue the conversation with Rabbi Jason Sobel on our inheritance as believers and much more. Let's pick up where we left off. I had a professor, of course, we don't 100% know, but he did a whole teaching on how he believes that they were actually either outside the temple or in the temple, he thinks, when the Holy Spirit came, right. probably not in a random room right, course, because it yeah. was Shavuot. Yeah. So they would have been celebrating that and how it was this representation that God's Spirit is no longer in a building, but it's come to dwell in believers. And he talks about how the trumpet was probably a shofar. And it was just like this really cool teaching, but it goes back to that same mandate of worship and being a living dwelling of his presence. Yeah, It's just a different way of doing it, really expanding, you know, the tabernacle becoming all of us than just a building, which is actually a really cool picture. Yeah, and it ties into this idea that on Pentecost, we're in Hebrew Shavuot, we know from the book of Acts, that's when everyone knows, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Yeah. But what they don't, many don't realize is that Shavuot, as we talk about in Mysteries of the Messiah, is actually the day in which God gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So oh, wow. the Word of God and the Spirit of God are given on the same day. Why is that? Because how did God create the world? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep and God spoke and he brought order out of chaos, light out of darkness and life comes forth. In the same way, we need the Word and the Spirit of God to completely transform the chaos in our life and bring about the power of new creation, transformation. And the Word and Spirit also represents Jesus as those, he's looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in, in truth. truth. And there we go, we see that same sort of old and new spirit and truth on the same day. That's so good. So you're talking about word and spirit. Also, you're referencing when Jesus says the true worship worshipers will worship me spirit and in truth. And I was just sitting here and I was thinking, I wonder if that's why there's been such an attack from the enemy to separate. And there's been churches that only want the word. And then there's churches that only want to emphasize the spirit. And that's where you actually will see chaos because we need both of those things. Absolutely, and it goes back to where we started. In part, that's also the full inheritance. Yeah. The full inheritance involves the Word of God and the Spirit of God, which brings about the full power of God in our life. Yeah, and I think that's why when people talk about, you know, people use different words to explain it. You know, the Jewish roots of the faith, that's one commonly used, or the one new man, all this kind of stuff. But understanding as Gentiles, where we come from and who we've been grafted into. It's not for like a small group of people. It's not like a niche thing. It's not only for Jewish believers. It's for all of us. And if we could fully embrace it, it would help, I think, not only give life and depth in our relationship with God, but I think it would bring balance because I think because of these things missing from our church culture, from our teaching, um, I think we're missing out on so much. And then I think priorities have kind of gotten a little out of balance because we haven't included these things, even though it's in the Bible. And I think it's for a time in this season. And I think there's a purpose behind it. What would you say is the purpose, kind of this awakening to Jesus as Yeshua? Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, you're right. I think that, it adds an excitement. It adds mm-hmm. a depth. Um, 
I think as part of being biblically literate and understanding the full story of the scriptures, this is how Jesus and the disciples studied and learned the scriptures. So why wouldn't we want what they had? And why wouldn't we want to learn the way they learned? I think it so much of bad theology comes as a result of, and false doctrine comes as a result of separating the two. Yeah. But I think more importantly, I think there's a prophetic significance to this. There's a prophetic aspect to this. Yeah. And I honestly think that one of the keys for the return of the Lord is for the church to understand its Jewish roots. And there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, one is because, you know, Yeshua, Jesus himself says, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch HaBa and I blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that literally means to welcome him as the Messiah. And we talk about it in Mysteries of the Messiah, that one of the reasons why Jewish people can't recognize him is because they don't recognize him as being Jewish. Like, for example, I grew up and I thought Jesus was a nice Jewish boy who became a Roman Catholic because I didn't know any Jewish kids by the name of Jesus who had mothers named Mary. And just like I'm Jason Sobel, I thought they were the Christ family, Mr. and Mrs. Christ meet Mr. and Mrs. Sobel. I had no idea that Christ was the Greek for the Hebrew Mashiach, meaning Messiah. Yeah. And this is the story of Joseph, right? Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him the first time they came down to Egypt. They only recognized him the second, and they didn't recognize him the first time because he dressed like an Egyptian. He spoke like an Egyptian. He was unrecognizably Jewish. He was hidden under Gentile garb. And I think we've made Jesus into something that he's not. And I think we have to strip away all these garments, all these cultural assumptions and things that have been placed upon him. And when we restore him to the biblical, Hebraic, Middle Eastern, historically, culturally accurate Jesus, I think that's part of the key that's going to open the eyes to the Jewish people. And then the church will begin to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy, which will then begin to turn their hearts, which then sets the way for the second coming. I do think that's a part of the provoking to jealousy as well, is they can see that this, that he is Jewish and that we're embracing that whole thing. And it's not this foreign faith. It's personal. It's something that they could connect to and relate to. The accusation is that probably not Jesus, but like the Paul or the, they, they started yeah. another religion. They did yeah. something that they did, you know, so again, we have to put it back in its context and that makes it, relevant both for the believer, but also for the Jewish people, it begins to open eyes because I think that, listen, most Jews are not religious. Yeah. And so when a believer understands like the Jewishness of the Messiah and the Last Supper was a Passover and we talk about in mysteries how all the Passover points to Jesus, when you understand that and you can talk to your Jewish friends about this, it does provoke them to jealousy because that's what it did in my life. I had a friend who wasn't even Jewish who knew more about the Messiah than I did, and it began to provoke me to jealousy. Yeah, actually, share with the people who are listening. Tell us your story of how you came to know Yeshua. I grew up in the Holy Land, New Jersey, where there are more (laughs) Jews than in Jerusalem. And I grew up in a Jewish family and went to Hebrew school, was bar mitzvahed 
was working in the music industry. I looked at the lives of all these famous people and said, there has to be more to life than just this. Started to study with my rabbi, but also studied martial arts and yoga. And one day I was meditating and my soul left my body. I went into heaven and I saw this king high and lifted up on this throne and felt the power of God. And I knew the king on that throne was Yeshua, that it was Jesus. And he told me I was called to serve him. Had no idea what that meant. My best friend came to faith, John. He said, Jason, could you tell the difference between the New and the Old Testament? I said, sure. He read me this passage about the crucifixion. I said, that must be the New Testament. He said, let me read you another passage. He was bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities by his stripes were healed. He said, Jason, older, new. I said, new. He said, no, that's Isaiah 53, the Jewish prophet speaking 700 years earlier. And I began to be provoked to jealousy because here's my friend who wasn't Jewish, knew more about the prophecies than I did. Invited me to a Messianic congregation. They prayed, I prayed. They said, if you prayed this prayer, you've just been born again. I had no idea what it meant to be born again. Gave my mother enough trouble when I was born once. God only knows if I'm born again. It was Rabbi Jonathan Kahn who led me to Yeshua. They gave me the first New Testament I'd ever read, took it home, read it. Was blown away how Jewish it was, all the Messianic prophecies. And then what Yeshua said to me in that encounter in heaven, was a verse from the New Testament, which I'd never read. I'm like, he's the Messiah, and I placed my faith in him. My mom found that Bible, said, go meet with the rabbi, you join the cult. I had to get out my, my Hebrew Bible, underline all the passages, proofs, prophecies of the Messiah, what's the job description? And that began my journey, and in part, we, this is what we're talking about in the book. What did the rabbi say when you came with all of that <laughs> scripture? That must have thrown him off a little bit. Yeah, I think it threw him off a little bit. I mean, the, he felt he had answers for most of the prophecies that I put forth. The one that he had no answer for was Daniel chapter 9, mm. which is one of the most important prophecies in Scripture, which Daniel's in exile 70 years, and the angel comes and says, not 70 years, 70 times 7, 490 years. And then the middle, and after 483 years, Messiah will be cut off and die. And at 490 years, all prophecy would be fulfilled. And that was 483 years from the rebuilding of Jerusalem, Messiah would die. So it gives the exact year from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem when Messiah had to die. It's, no one could have, no one, he's the only person that could have fulfilled that prophecy. Yeah. And he didn't have it. That was hard when he's like, well, let me think about it. I Wait, I've never, no one... This is crazy to me. I've talked to so many people about this. I've never heard anyone make that argument. I didn't even know about that. Yeah. It so gives, the timing adds up perfectly? Yeah, yeah. There's several decrees, but you say so you have to figure, okay, from which decree? But if you do it from the right decree, literally 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Messiah came and died. Oh, my goodness. And it ties into how the, we talk about in the book, how the Magi knew to look for the star in the sky because they were from Babylon, which were, was where Daniel mm -hmm. had the prophecies. So yeah. there was this time frame they knew about it. But yeah, it's perfectly to the, to the year of when he died, which is incredibly precise and no one else fulfilled that. That's so good. I was just thinking about how when you were talking about there needs to be Gentiles who bless the Jewish people who embrace the Jewish people. And it makes me think about the story of Ruth and Boaz. And that's actually something you talk about in your book and I want you to share. But Ruth is an example of a Gentile who, because she loved her husband and then Naomi, her mother-in-law, she said, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. 
and that God's call for all Gentiles is to have that same heart because we love Him, we love the Jewish people. Can you speak to some of the mysteries of Messiah in yeah, that story? I mean, it's such a powerful story, and I think it's something like you're saying. This is so significant to understand today because let's move from the New Testament and back because when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, mm -hmm. there are four women in the genealogy. And women weren't included in first century genealogies. They were all men, wow. was the norm. Now there's these four women. Well, what do they all have in common? Well, the number one thing they have in all in common is that they're all Gentiles, right? You have going back to Tamar. Yeah. Uh, then you go on to the story of uh, Joshua, which is... Rahab. Rahab. And then you have Ruth. And, the, and then you have uh, Bathsheba, right? So, so you have these women in the genealogy of Jesus. And the significance is that the men are Jewish. Ruth was Gentile. Boaz was Jewish. Same with all those marriages, you know, Judah and Tamar. So what's the significance? In the same way it took Jew and Gentile to birth the line of the Messiah, it's going to take Jew and Gentile to birth the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Wow. And God's presence, power, and provision is always proportional to the unity of his people. Well, the unity is not unity of Gentiles. The unity is not unity of Jews. The unity is the one new humanity of Jew and Gentile united in the Messiah. And now more than ever, when you look at what's going on in the Middle East and all the turmoil, yeah. right? We need to model this, the shalom of God between Jew and Gentile in Messiah to birth his kingdom as a testimony. Would you say some people think it is connected to it, some people would say it's not, but with Shavuot, a lot of times people read the story yeah, of Ruth absolutely. and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz is connected to the story of, that's what Jews read to this day. Ruth and Boaz happened at Shavuot, happened at Pentecost. Pen Shavuot is in part a harvest holiday. Yeah. It's when you offered the grain, the fuller grain offering to the Lord, the wheat offer, wheat, uh, harvest the Lord. That's why in Shavuot, in the temple, in the days when Jesus would have went up to the temple to worship in Jerusalem, one of the main things they did on Shavuot was wave two loaves of bread before the Lord. Well, why two loaves of bread? Well, it's the two tablets at Mount Sinai the, yeah. of the covenant that came on that day. But it's also Jew and Gentile united in Messiah coming together. That's the full offering uh, to the Lord. Oh, wow. That's so cool. And do you think, because of like the coming of the Holy Spirit in the harvest, do you think that could tie into the harvest of souls? Oh, absolutely. I think that the on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. The yeah. tongues were languages that other people heard mm -hmm. to uh, so that it could be a witness and that they would believe. And 3,000 believed. So in the days of Moses, they worshiped the golden calf and 3,000 died. Oh, okay. Wow. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believed. So it's the first fruits of the messianic age. It's the first fruits of the harvest of salvation. Jesus rose as the first fruits from among the dead. But the full harvest is not going to come until the end of the age, which is the Gentile and Jew, old and new, word and spirit, all coming together. The two loaves are the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah. It's the salvation of the nations and ultimately the salvations of Israel. But it's all coming together in that. And that's encapsulated in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth the Gentile, 
attaching to herself to Boaz the Jew. And together, that's the picture of what God wants to bring about. One of the things I was thinking about with Passover is it's celebrating them leaving, you know, being delivered from Egypt. And I was thinking about the wilderness. And I think for so many years, I misunderstood the wilderness. I just looked at it as difficult. And you actually talk about the wilderness in your book. But I was thinking about that verse. It says, I took you on eagle's wings and like drawed you to myself. And how really it was more of, was meant to be a time of intimacy, I'm believing. Yeah. It just, they just didn't embrace it as that. So can you speak to what is the wilderness, because it's spoken about a lot in church, but it's always kind of seen as a negative. Yeah, it's often seen as a negative, but actually, biblically, it's a very positive thing. doesn't mean it's an easy thing, but it's no. a positive yeah. thing, right? So part of the thing, like you're saying, the desert, as we talk about in the book, is a place of intimacy. So in Hebrew, the word for desert is midbar. Mm-hmm. And midbar comes from the word, the verb, davar, or daber, which means to speak. So there's a connection between speaking in the desert. Why? Because God brings his people out in the desert because that's the place he wants to speak to us. Because there's no distractions, right? There's so many things competing for like our time and our attention and all we're being bombarded with all this information. It's hard to slow down, hear the Lord. So the place, the desert is a place that God speaks. And God can turn any desert into something special because the word for desert and the word to speak is also connected to the word for the Holy of Holies. Oh, wow. Devere, the Bible calls the Holy of Holies. Devere comes to the word devar, connected to the word desert. Because when God speaks to us in the desert, it becomes a place of intimacy. Even the desert can become a place of the Holy of Holies. That's so good. And almost like it could be a time of purifying that we could even be brought into that place of greater intimacy with Him. Yeah, because the desert is a place of intimacy, but it's also a place where God teaches us dependence, mm. right? The children of Israel had to depend upon God for direction. They led him as a cloud of smoke by day, pillar of fire by night, had to depend upon him for the manna from heaven, oh, had to yeah. depend upon him from the water, from the rock. So the desert is a place that we not only learn to hear from God, but we learn to depend upon God as well. And the desert is a place of transformation and renewal. Israel is in the desert 40 years. Jesus is in the desert 40 days. Why? Because a full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks. Mm -hmm. God is wanting to birth something in his people in the desert seasons that renews us, that transforms us, that changes us. And every Almost every great person of faith, God changed them in the desert. Yeah. Abraham in the desert, Isaac in the desert, Jacob, Joseph, um, Jesus. I mean, David. He went in the desert. David, <laughs> right? David was shepherding sheep when God calls him in the desert. Moses mm-hmm. was in the desert. And of course, Jesus in the desert. Yeah. John the Baptist in the desert, Elijah. And in the New Testament, God's going to bring in the end of days Israel into the desert to protect them and prepare them for the return of the Lord. So we need our desert seasons because God uses the desert as the door to transformation and intimacy. And that's just such an encouraging word because I think instead of, I mean, we can learn from the Israelites, we shouldn't be complaining, 
even if it's difficult, because we need to have that encouragement. You just said where God is doing something purposeful and it's for a reason and for Israel, for them to be able to inherit the promises that he had for them in the promised land, they had to be prepared because they had been living in this pagan world. And it's like us before he delivers us with salvation, we've been, you know, it says our father's the devil. You know, the Bible is very clear about who we are before we receive salvation. And so God does a transformative work within us so that we can receive and walk in the promises that he has for us. Yeah, and I think you'll you'll appreciate this because of the season of life you're in, which is that Egypt literally means a place of confinement or restriction. Mm-hmm. In Hebrew, Mitzrayim, Sar. And Egypt is the womb. That's where God took Israel from 70 and made him into millions. Yeah. It was the womb, right? And then when he brings them to the Red Sea and he parts the sea, that's the breaking of the woman's water. Oh my goodness. And going through the Red Sea is Israel going through the birthing canal. And when they come out the other side, they are born as a free nation instead of a slave people. And they're in the desert for 40 years because that's God growing them to maturity so that they could go in. And that's why in the desert, right? He gives them water. He gives them bread. He get, he has to tell them exactly where to go. That's like a child in your child, right? You have to get, you have to feed your child, right? You have to prepare the food. You have to give them, you know, you have to give them food. You have to give them drink. You have to give them very clear directions, right? But when they're, but that's all to prepare them for maturity so they can make their own decisions as they grow up. So God does everything for them in the desert, but then they have to partner with God to grow in and take the promised land. And so God took Israel out of Egypt, but he had to take Egypt out of Israel and grow them to maturity. And that's what he was doing in the desert with them. That's so cool though. So God gets them ready in the desert because they have to partner with him and the promised land, because they didn't just walk in, they had to fight. The desert is training for raining. Oh, wow. He trains us in the desert, right? David was prepared to face the Goliath because he had to fight the bear and the wolf in the desert. He had to learn to care for the sheep in the desert, which ultimately prepared him to become the shepherd of Israel. Oh, wow. And that actually leads to one of the things I want to talk about is David is another thing that you talk about in the book, that he is a type of Messiah. Speak to that. Yeah, so significant in many ways. I mean, God makes a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the children of Israel. And God says, ultimately, the Messiah has to be from the house of David. God makes a covenant known as the Davidic covenant and Mm -hmm. says, one of your descendants will sit upon my throne forever. And so the Messiah had to be born from the lineage of David. And that's part of the great significance of why the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, because David is from Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And so he had to be born in the same city as uh, King David. And there's something so interesting, even with Bethlehem, numerically, because Bethlehem has a numerical value of 490. Mm -hmm. And 490 is a numerical value uh, of nativity to be born. It's the numerical value to be perfect or 
complete. Mm-hmm. So Messiah is the Messiah was born 490 in Bethlehem 490 as the spotless one, the Lamb of God, Tamim 490. But of course, there's more, which is that Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times do I have to forgive? Mm-hmm. Up to seven times. And he's not impressed. Jesus is not impressed. This is not 70 times, 70 times seven, seven 490. Well, why does he pick that number? Because 490 is connected to Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. It's connected to Bethlehem, think about it, it means perfect or complete. You can't be perfect or complete in your faith unless you learn to forgive, forgive, right? But there's something more because Bethlehem means house of bread. Mm -hmm. So in our the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses, right? So Jesus connects bread and forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer, the Last Supper, the Passover, the bread that was broken. So in the same way, we can't live physically without bread, we can't live without the bread of forgiveness. And when we withhold forgiveness, it's like telling a starving person to go and die. When we get saved, it's not just about being forgiven of our sins or redemption or eternal life. All of these things are great, but it's actually the adoption into his family. And it's this beautiful picture. And the whole sum of scripture is a love story from God to us. And that that's why it says in the Bible over and over again, I will be their God and they will be my people because that is God's greatest desire. Can you just kind of speak to God being a father and how family is everything to him? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, if the economy of heaven is faith mm-hmm. and the economy of this world is fear, so this world runs on fear, yeah. faith is what heaven runs on. But the government of heaven is family. And so heaven is not, you know, it's not Egypt where there's a Pharaoh who's kind of, you know, everyone else is below them. And it's kind of a pyramid with, you know, one person or a couple of people on top and everyone's below. It's not how heaven works. Heaven is a family. Of course, he's king and all of that and, and our Lord and our Savior. But it's about family. Yeah. And, you know, so many people are experiencing that emotional exile, you know, being born in a sense rejected because of sin. And well, a better word I would like to say is disconnected from the father. And of course, what's beautiful about salvation is we become fully accepted by him. And that's his heart to be connected to us. That's why he sent his son. And so I think there's just so many people who've experienced hurt, from their own families who are experiencing that emotional exile like you were referencing earlier. And they, through that pain, can distort or not understand how great God's love is for them and how God's heart is to actually reach out to them. And of course, there's the lie of religion that says you're not good enough and you need to do A, B, C, and D and follow these rules to be right. And God's saying, no, I paid the price so that you could be connected to me you know, for everyone who's watching who might be, who don't understand that God is a father or that God loves them or how much they don't have that revelation of sonship or maybe they're struggling in their identity or they're struggling with pain from their own, you know, father wounds or parent wounds. Could you just pray for those people? Yeah, I just want to pray for you right now in the name of Yeshua, that in him, that he's come to take your brokenness and he wants to make you whole. 
when you invite the Lord into your life as your Redeemer, that brings you salvation, but there's salvation God wants to bring also transformation. So God doesn't want to just save you for eternity. Mm -hmm. He wants to transform you by encountering you right here and right now. He wants to touch your heart. He wants to heal you. He wants to make you whole. He's breaking off that spirit of rejection over you right now. You have not been abandoned. You have not been orphaned. God loves you. He has been for you. He is with you. His intentions are to do you good. There is a future for you. He wants to give you a hope. He declares over you, your future is going to be better than your past. If you just open your heart and invite him in to come into those hurting places, to come into those wounded places, God will heal those holes and make you whole in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah. And you can become his favorite son or daughter. Such a good prayer. And now I'm sitting here thinking about all these people who might be listening or watching and they're thinking, I'm not saved, but I do want to become a child of God. Can you just say a prayer of salvation for those who are watching? Yeah, I just want to invite you to pray with me. You can pray in your own words. It's not something that's complicated. Lord, just as come as you are. It's just simple. He loves you. He says, God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So just... That's what you desire to become a child of the King. Just pray with me. Just say, uh, Lord, I know that I have fallen short and I thank you that you have sent your son, Yeshua, Jesus, who gave his life, who died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead so that I can overcome death and find eternal life. So Lord, come into my heart come into my life. I believe and receive the salvation you offer me by your grace in Jesus' name, by faith. Amen. That's so good. Thank you so much (laughs) for sharing about the book, for these different prayers and blessings. I know it's going to touch so many people. For everyone who is interested in the book, where can they get it? Yeah, Mysteries of the Messiah. You can buy it at any of your favorite retailers of books from Amazon.com to Barnes & Noble, or you can go to our website, fusionglobal.org. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here and for helping us connect through the mysteries of the Messiah. And for everyone who is watching, I hope that this has helped you go deeper in your faith. I hope that you've been encouraged to connect with Messiah and to really embrace all it means to be grafted into God's family. Hey, thanks for watching. Follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Lamb Weiss.